Why is it that of all the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black holes, you are beyond doubt the strangest? The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew Russell and Lindbold Christmas. Oh yeah, baby, Walker Percy. Walker Percy, who's that? Walker Percy was a a philosopher, an American writer from Birmingham, Birmingham. Alabama. Not the real Birmingham, but Birmingham. Sorry, American listeners. Home of legends like like myself (laughs) and Ozzy Osbourne. Are you from Birmingham? I am from Birmingham, yes. How did I not know that? I don't know. but Which one's bigger? Oh, Birmingham, UK is bigger. Yeah? yeah? Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I believe you. I don't know why I'm questioning it. <laughs> the city of Birmingham, Alabama is something like quarter of a million, whereas Birmingham, UK is over a million. Oh, well, how about that? Mm. I don't know. I just assumed like Southern US big things. No, it's, it's, <laughs> I, don't I, I, don't, I don't think Birmingham, Alabama is that big a city. No. It's not that big. It's not that big. And Birmingham, UK is bigger than it is in people's minds. <laughs> well, guess. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the second city. Is it? I'm actually? sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that to the people of Manchester who always oh, claim I was it's just them. about to say, is it not Greater Manchester? No, 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 no. Birmingham's just a little bit, just a tad bigger. And it's of course, it's where the modern world comes from. It's it is the place where the Industrial Revolution started. Again, surely Manchester wants to have a word with it. They, 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 they like to think they like to think it. Manchester should claim the start of the atom and nuclear, you know, nuclear power. That's I'm what sure they should be claim. okay with that. Did you know that in Swedish corduroy, the material is called Manchester? Oh wow, is yeah. that right? Yeah, we yeah. just call it Manchester. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so space, <laughs> so space. Uh, is there Good anything start. decent in space from Birmingham? Don't know. Well, Probably there's Birmingham. Not. Well, there's Birmingham University, which has got some fine astrophysicists at it, and it's a very important uh, place for physics. Birminghamian astronauts, perhaps? I don't think anyone from Birmingham has been an astronaut. Also, what do you call someone from Birmingham? It's not Birminghamian, I assume. No, it's it's a Brummie. Oh, Brummie, of course, the Brummie accent. The Brummie accent. And of course, most Americans uh, recognise Brummies from uh, uh, Peaky Blinders. Oh, Jesus, yeah. I've, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I've never seen it. I've only heard. We need a to get back opinions. to space, okay, sorry, 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 Come sorry, on, sorry, sorry. <laughs> spacing out ironically. Spacing out unironically. Yeah. Um, so before we start, it's a word up to the mega patrons, which are Justin Roberts and Drew Wright. Thank you very much, guys. I cannot tell you how important and how amazing your contribution is to the Interplanetary Podcast. Legends. Hi, Lynn. Hi. <laughs> we mi- we missed you. We missed you. We didn't have I you last week. You guys. We had to had to have a patron fill in for you. Oh, lame. No, I, know, I listened I to know. it. You guys did a great job. I very ah, much enjoyed it. Thanks. No, thanks. Um, uh, Lynn, where are you right now? Right now, I'm at the famous Ongström Laboratory at Uppsala University, which is where it's I work. Very cool. It is very cool. It's it's named after. So when people um, people who maybe are doing science at university or something, you've maybe seen that there is this unit of wavelength called one angstrom, is how how the anglicized version is. And of course, I was always the nerd when I went to university in England, who was like, guys, it's not actually angstrom, it's ongstrom. <laughs> <laughs> Just yes. to really correct them. Pipe pipe down, Lee. Exactly, like exactly. That. So the, the one that is the A with the circle above it, you may have seen it, 
which is the mm -hmm. unit for 10 to the minus 10 meters, which is really useful because there's a lot of uh, interesting sort of electromagnetic radiation that happens around those kinds of wavelengths. So rather than saying like, oh, this is as a wavelength of 4.8 to the times 10 to the minus 10 or something, you can just say like, oh, it's 4.5 Ångström. Um, but it's named after a person called Anders Ångström. Uh, and so the uh, circle above the A actually does change the the sound of it. And people think it's just like an accent that you can sort of delete. Uh, but actually the A with the circle above it is a totally individual uh, letter in the Swedish alphabet. So it's kind of like looking at a Q and being like, oh, well, that's just a little dash. I'm going to pronounce it like an O. <laughs> or looking oh, at a no. P and being like, oh, or looking at a B and seeing like, oh, well, there's just this little extra thing that's basically a P, right? Um, so no, the A with the circle above it is pronounced totally differently. It's pronounced like an A-O sound. So it's Ångström, because then the two dots above the O also makes it a O-E sound. Really nice. not to do with space, actually, but I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm really passionate back. about Swedish language. Yeah, well, no, fair enough. And yeah. and the fact that I can see you in your little office there is yes. very, very cool. It's super cool. Um, it is nice. Uh, it is nice. I, I'm in Guildford, which of course is the place where they build lots and lots of Satellites. That's true. I wonder so, how many yeah. Angstroms away you are from me. This quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. The, jo <laughs> the joke here at Ångström Laboratory in Uppsala is that like, you know, one Ångström is walking the length of this building, which is quite a lot more than, because <laughs> it's quite a long building. Uh, yeah, that's one Angstrom. <laughs> it's not a good joke. No, no I, I learned, I learned a, a, new, um, a new little phrase, um, a bit like the Ångström. It's a, it's yeah. a measurement of... A, distance called minimum orbit intersection distance the moid oh, do you know this one no I the don't. moid so uh, the I, I found uh, i found it because diddymos yes or or 65803 diddymos to give it its full it's government it's name full it's government name <laughs> don't bait out its government name <laughs> whatever you do but it's the yes uh, uh, it's earth moid is 0 0.0403 au what do you wow. think that means? What do you think that means? The it, AU it, as in astronomical unit? Yeah, I know what you I know that you know what astronomical <laughs> unit means, but but it, having a 0.04403 AU, what do you think that means? I don't know. Is that the radius? Yeah, so that 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 would be its minimum orbital insertion distance, oh. intersection, minimum orbit intersection distance. In other words, it's a kind of measurement about how dangerous it is in terms of its likelihood to crash into <laughs> Earth. <laughs> so I think so that's, I think that's that feels what low it's then. Yeah, it's, low. it is it's pretty low. Yeah. So in other words, yeah, you know, it's 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 four percent the distance of the sun. So this is roughly. of course in the context of DART, which has just happened, the double asteroid redirection test. Oh my god, I'm so excited that this actually happened. Yeah, do you know do you know what? The, one of the best things I've seen about that is the European Space Agency managing to do a little film from the ground of it actually hitting. It's crazy. It was from the French island of La Réunion. Ah yes. In the Indian Ocean. They managed to capture this kind of sequence of images. It's so cool. Almost like in real time, like yeah. 30 odd seconds later. <sighs> as we've just heard, they're not that far away. No. There's another called LD, which is a bit like 
AU. Yeah. It's only 15 or 16 lunar distances away. And that's not that far. Well, it is far. It's far. It's just, yeah, in terms of the the size of the galaxy. The galaxy, it's nothing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) You're right. It's nothing. Yeah. Whereas in terms of the size of the solar system. I feel like astronomers are really unhinged. Like we have no sense of scale anymore where like everything can be so, this tiniest thing would be like, wow, it's pretty big. I mean, it's bigger than an atom. Or we can be like, oh, well, you know, that's only like a couple of galaxies with. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what is cool about Didymus. Didymus has a moon called Dimorphus. Which, if I may interject, I'm really sad because I thought Diddy Moon was a much cuter name. <laughs> that's what people used to call it. Well, its proper designation is Didymus 1. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> Boo, bring back the real names. That's that's and, my uh, that's my toxic opinion as an astronomer. Yeah, and and uh, dimorphous, of course, means having two forms, which is pretty suitable, actually. All things considered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's now, now it's it's definitely got two forms. Now it's been <laughs> it's hit. got a couple. Now, <laughs> now it's been hit by a great big lump of metal. Yeah, I love five, that. Five. For once, we were able to crash something into something and start clapping. Yeah. Oh no, it's not. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened though, is it? The Americans have crashed things into comets yeah, before, haven't they? That's true. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. bounced things off of comets before. <laughs> we have. It's not talking but about it's, it. <laughs> yeah, we have bounced things off comets. The Europeans have landed things on comets. That's true. So, we even got know. things back from comets. JAXA, right? Oh my. Yeah, JAXA's done it. Or NASA have done it as well. Comets. Yeah. In fact, NASA are in the process of doing it again as well. God, in fact, the Japanese. Boring. Yeah, yeah, it's actually getting boring now. But yeah. yeah, this is this is all about planetary defense, though. Yeah, this one's Dart, for the dinosaurs. This one is is taking one for for our ancestors, our lizard ancestors. Yes, exactly. finishing business. Maybe the dinosaurs <laughs> can finally stop haunting us because we've like finished their unfinished business. In so, how, okay. figuring out how to get rid of asteroids. So, how does Dart? Help us get rid of asteroids. Go on then. The threat of asteroids. The threat of asteroids. So the idea of it is that we wanted to test, in simple terms, if we were to spot an asteroid hurdling towards Earth, uh, don't look up style, could we smishy smashy something into it to change its course, uh, to make it go somewhere that isn't Earth? And so we've done a smash into it. And what we're checking now is to see by how much we were able to deviate its uh, course and then to see if that is sufficient. I mean, all of this will depend on like, how big is the asteroid? What kind of density is it? You know, if you imagine uh, asteroids and comets, they can be anything from like a sort of ashy snowball to like a proper rock. Uh, so so what material it's made of as well is, is also a, a big question. Um, but this is like the first time I think, right, that they've done like a really proper, this is, we're doing this for redirection. That's what the R in DART stands for. Yeah, exactly. So they're trying to, yeah, push it, push it away. And I suppose like if you do anything that's when it's far enough out. Yeah. Then by the time yeah exactly you You don't don't have have to to move it that much much. precisely. But then I suppose you might just be kicking the ball into the long grass because you you push it out one time and then when you look at it again, it says, "Oh, it's now it's on a collision course for sixty years' time." Yeah, but you know what? When it's the eighty ninth minute, you just kick that ball away from the goal. That is true. (laughs) Well, that that is exactly right. Yeah, Yeah. it's like it's like kicking a ball. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's kicking it behind, isn't it? Yeah. 
And just like hoping it. there won't be <laughs> overtime. <laughs> and now the asteroids have got a corner. Exactly. But then, you know, then at least you have 60 years to prepare for a bigger, better, a more violent redirection, right? So, yeah, I, mean, I suppose so. It's yeah. a hypothetical scenario at this point. I mean, uh, hopefully we'll never have to use this technology. Oh, well, um, we'll definitely have to use this technology. I mean, that's almost I like a given, isn't it? Yeah, we might. We might not have to use it. Yeah, we might not have to use it in our lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. Although, I, although I do plan on living forever, Lynn. Excellent. I hope you cool. Yeah, but um, climate. The, um, well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've got podcasts to make. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> right, it's true. So, uh, but yeah, but we will have to at some point because you know, Chicksy yeah. killed yeah. off the dinosaurs, as go. we know. And uh, it's it's a ma- only a matter of time. Do you want to hear? But, do you want to hear a cool fact about uh, that asteroid? I don't. Mm-hmm. No, I I don't want to. I don't want to like uh, put uh, my my reputation on the line here. Uh, but I did actually for an Aries talk I did recently. I figured out using a number that I used for my old master's thesis about how many of those asteroids would have to smash into Earth at the same time to release as much energy as a supernova. Well, well, presumably it's billions and billions. It's a really big number. Well, I, I, I do know one fact, and that is yeah. that the, Chicks, the Chicxulub explosion was more than a billion Hiroshima's in energy. Well, so, but in terms of supernova, do you want to know the number? Oh, go on. Go on. Now it's you've got it. 10 billion billion, which is then 10, 10 to the billion, 19... Billion. Which, in yeah, case a... you're wondering, is about 20 times more than there have been seconds since the Big Bang. It is an illegally large number. Yeah. <laughs> 10 billion billion. So yeah. a supernova is 10 billion 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 nuclear bombs. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, which, is, which then becomes ridiculous. Dumb. Just just like <laughs> too many zero. I can't count that high. 19 yeah. is way no, too that... big of a number for me to count to. <laughs> So yeah, that would be 10 to the 28 nuclear bombs. Yeah. So I do feel like the dinosaurs would have been very grateful for a planetary defense system that would have protected them from this fate. Um, so that's why the the dart, it's it's for the dinosaurs. It's for the dino bros. All that work by people like Ongstrom and all the yeah. people that went before him and her and everyone else that sort of, you know, part of the human mission. We can't let them down by having all that lost, can we? Absolutely. And I mean, so I just think it's so that, cool. I just think it's great as well that there's like an actual genuine uh, endeavor to do it. Uh, it's not just like a science fiction uh, funny plot line, but it's actually like, you know, we we, <laughs> we should have some kind of defense for it. So I think yeah. it's really cool. Well done, NASA, because that apparently looks all But right. we now do have the next chapter begins now because now it's the ESA part. Uh, it's not launching until 2024, I believe. October-ish, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. October-ish, yeah. On an Ariane 6. Is it actually? <gasps> I didn't know that. Hopefully Amazing. that all goes well yeah. in the new year. So that so that, so that happens. Hopefully, Because yes. that would delay it. Because that would definitely delay it if it doesn't happen. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't but. know how, how vital it is that they catch this launch window. But anyway, so now that the smishy smashy bonk has happened... Uh, it's time for <laughs> technical term. Apologies. Uh, now um, there's this probe that ESA is sending out, which I guess it's Hera. Hera, H E R A. It's the it's the Greek goddess. We, did, we decided both were acceptable. I think yeah. Hera sh- and Hera. Should I say both at the same time? He, Hera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Uh, <laughs> the H. Who knows dog. how the Greeks would have said it? 
you know the goddess of marriage. If there are any Greek people listening, uh, do let us know <laughs> and and rate our Greek out of ten, or maybe don't to spare our feelings. No, but, no, don't, please, please, <laughs> please don't. Uh, but yeah, no. So this is a probe that uh, that ESA is sending up, and so uh, they're going to be perform a post impact survey uh, of what's left of of the poor bastard. <laughs> Um, which is great because, I mean, this is also yet again just another great chance to to study um, solar system bodies. Yeah, and the, and, and it's going to be carrying a couple of little nano-satellites. Exactly. Milani and Juventus. Probably also correctly pronounced. <laughs> That's going to be really exciting because that is a humanity first of a satellite actually going out to a binary asteroid and getting into orbit along with it. I feel like roundabouts are scary. So like this is really taking it to the next level. There's a brilliant ESA picture of it being just above, right above the Colosseum. So it's yeah. about the size of the Colosseum. Yeah, like uh, the, the little The little moon. So yeah. how, big, how big do you think um, Didymos is? God, bigger than the dinosaur killing one. <laughs> it's less than a kilometer. Really? You know, the, it's getting into orbit with something that's pretty small. Yeah. But still pretty big. It's, yeah. it, I mean, it's pretty impressive, <laughs> Again, isn't it? To astronomy. Even, yeah, astronomy, engineering, yeah. rocketry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really impressive that you can even attempt to get something into orbit around something that doesn't even look like a grain of sand from yeah. Earth. It's you know. it's nuts. I'm yet again in awe of what humanity can achieve. As I yeah. sit drinking tea, it's a, it's a bit like sending a spacecraft out. Uh, if you could see the Colosseum, if it was fifteen times further away than the Moon, it's dumb. It's dumb. You know, work out all the orbital mechanics of of chasing it down and then mm-hmm. getting into orbit around it with enough fuel. It's very impressive indeed. Do you want to hear what the um, Hera mission manager said about the uh, DART impact. I would love to. His results from DART <laughs> will prepare us for Hera's visit for a Didymos binary system to examine the aftermath of the impact. A few years from now, Hera will help us understand what happened to Dimorphos, the first celestial body to be measurably moved by humankind <laughs> and ultimately protect ourselves from space rocks. <laughs> that the one day could do the same. There we go. So what That's part of Birmingham my... is he from? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Italian quarter. Oh yeah, of course. Little Italy. Yeah. It's it's a really it's another one of those brilliant little in- international collaborations. It's amazing. I, I love the fact, I don't know if uh, maybe I'm too young to remember a previous time, but I think it's so great that I really feel like space endeavors are becoming more and more and more and more collaborative and international and, and all this stuff. I think it's amazing. Hmm. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a really good guest. Oh, have you? On here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've got Dr. Becky. That's how most people know her. <gasps> or Becky. Or uh, Dr. Becky, half a million subscribers on YouTube oh for an my. astro, for, for an astronomy for an astronomy, you know, a serious astronomy um, YouTube channel. That's, that's amazing. That's pretty impressive. That's yeah, very that's impressive. Pretty impre- yeah, so she's a, a junior research fellow at the University of Oxford. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. A recipient of the 2020 Caroline Herschel Prize lectureship. That's very cool. She's 2020 Mary Somerville Medal and Prize awarded by the Institute of Physics. Won the Royal Astronomical Society's Winton Award for research by a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy whose career has shown the most promising development. I feel deeply insecure. 
<laughs> yeah, you're you're out, Lynn. Becky's in. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's fair enough. Actually, I would replace me too. <laughs> Uh, and 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 I've read two of her books now. So I've 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 owned for a long time her book Space Ten Things You Should Know, which is mm-hmm. very it's a small little book and it's really cool. Cool. And she's she's just written a new book out on the first of September called A Brief History of Black Holes, which which as you'll hear is is her attempt to kind of address all the things that people get wrong about black holes, you know, like black holes are like vacuum cleaners sucking everything up. (laughs) All that kind of, all that kind of craziness. classic ones. I cannot recommend her channel enough. If if you see a James Webb image, Mm -hmm. then there's a bunch of stupid like news articles about it. Then, (laughs) then it's, then normally Dr. Becky's pretty quick at at putting up a kind of YouTube response and, and it's always very, very good. Always. um, That's really good. Gets to the heart of the matter. That's also really, that's really good because especially like sort of misinformation. I mean, that's a strong word mm-hmm. actually, but a lot of the time people do. I saw the other day, I was trying to find a, a picture of Europa and I found a YouTube video that was like, pictures from the surface of Europa. And they were like, uh, basically a sci-fi video game uh, with a huge Jupiter in the background. And I was like, wow, cool. Didn't know we just had landed already and got loads of HD pictures from there. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. It's Yeah, I'm not going to call it misinformation, yeah, but having having people to clarify what's real and what's not real. Um, because, I mean, really, the, the truth is is the most impressive thing there is. So. Yeah, it's quite frustrating because I was on holiday in Greece quite recently. Oh, yeah. Going back, going back to the Greeks. Yeah. And it's quite funny as soon as you say, oh, you know, you meet someone, they say, oh, what do you do? And you say, oh, I've got a little space podcast. Yeah. Oh, I'm really interested in space. And then mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, they'll recount some recent news story they've seen. Oh, apparently yeah. they found a new water world. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, they have, but is it you know yeah, it's just like yeah. it's like and, and so it it almost seems that when you're trying to tell the truth you sometimes kind of ruin the kind of romantic yeah. bubble that, that the kind of less scrupulous press will use you know what i think it is i think it's because the scientific truth it's not very snappy it's everything but it's 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 uh it's elaborate and it's it's layered and it's nuanced and that's not very uh, impressive in the same way. It's much easier to take something and then like package it into a small thing and be like, we found a water world rather than like, we found a potential candidate that does seem to show some sort of detection of water vapor in its atmosphere, but really only within this many sigma. Like it's not yeah. that, uh, it's not that sexy. It's not, it's not that catchy. It's not exactly. that catchy, is it? And so, But, I but think- you you run the danger of of putting people off because then they'll, they always yes. come back with that stupid, oh, science keeps changing its mind on things. It's like, yeah, no, that's it, what it's it supposed do- to do. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it revises yeah. its mind on things. I not, think you'll find I still yeah. like the way that I am orbiting, with the sun orbiting the center of the earth. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are stupid scientists. Thank goodness anyway. for people like Dr. Becky. Well, exactly, Dr. Becky. In, in all seriousness, she is a bit of a sort of science sci-com hero of Amazing. mine. Very, very, very cool. So it was really, really good to get her on the uh, on the podcast. So would would you like to hear it? I would love to. Let's hear it. Okay, Aikutai, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast by Becky Smethurst. Welcome to the podcast, Becky. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, uh, Becky, uh, loads of people that listen to this podcast will know you because you are pretty uh, big on YouTube. How, before we get on to 
black holes and and James Webb, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about how you sort of started your science communication rise to fame. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm an astrophysicist. Uh, I'm a researcher. I study supermassive black holes, but I've just always loved to chat about space. And I think I've had, you know, like family and friends that have just generally been curious about what I do as well. And so got used to, you know, explain, explaining it to them in a way that they could also understand as well, that, you know, wasn't just a conversation with my colleague. It was, you know, almost like a different language that you had to speak to be able to communicate with family and friends just so they understood, you know, what I'd gone off to do. Um, and so I realized that I actually really enjoyed that aspect, almost the challenge of how do I explain this so that they can understand um, and I never really lost that through sort of my university career and then getting my PhD and going on to be a researcher. So I realized that YouTube was just a really great platform to have a chat with people. You know, you could do a quick 10, 15 minute uh, video about something. People would post comments. You'd be able to answer their questions. And so it's just really grown out of this love of chatting space, which I'm sure you obviously mm. recognize as well with the podcast. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, it's exactly the same as, exactly the same as, as how, why I do it really. Cause yeah, I'm always explaining mm. to my friends that those aspects of stuff. I mean, were you surprised that it, that you got as many watches as you, as you did? A little bit. Yeah. Cause I'm just chatting away in my spare room, mostly through the pandemic as well as something to do. And um, yeah, it really took off from there. So I did actually get my start on YouTube um, through a different channel actually as well. I don't know if people are familiar with 60 Symbols. Uh, Brady Haran runs it along with like Numberphile and Computerphile, all these mm. big channels. So I got my start there when I was at the University of Nottingham. It was a position that was basically... Uh, we've got some research money available, but if you want it, you'll have to make videos for 60 Symbols too, um, which was which was great, great fun. And uh, after I finished up there, I decided, yeah, my own channel is something I want to start up to. And uh, I think people maybe have sort of recognized me from there and that helped growth and everything like that. Um, and now, yeah, we're, we're very nearly almost at 500,000 people. And yeah. I feel like, I mean, I'm used to big numbers every day. I study supermassive <laughs> black holes, so it's probably the biggest numbers you can get. But like, I don't think I quite realized how big that number was until my dad said to me you could fill Wembley Stadium five times over and, and have some people yeah spare, uh, yeah which is insane so yeah I know I, I do exactly the same thing when I'm sort of talking to people about yeah what what does the podcast look like each week and it's yeah it's 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 like yeah if it was in a in a auditorium that would be you'd be very <laughs> impressive so yeah I mean yours is you know yours is uh uh, rock in Rio, isn't it? I mean, that's just insane, <laughs> insane numbers. That's really encouraging, isn't it? Because you 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 don't you don't mess around really, but but you sort of do, mm -hmm. but you also don't kind of do the super flowery stuff or the super kind of going over the top with things. It, it is really kind of saying how it is, while at the same time keeping it pretty exciting. So that, that, those numbers are super impressive. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I always didn't like that about documentaries when I was watching them, just the like, I was like, get to the point, you know, the <laughs> graphics are amazing, but I want to hear what it is. And and the thing that frustrated me as a kid was I didn't just want to learn facts. I didn't want to learn what we knew. 
I wanted to learn how we knew something. Mm. So that's definitely always a focus I have on my channel is, okay, so this is how we figured this out, or this is the person that figured this out in history, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, or whatever that is. And that's why we have this idea now and not something else. And I think understanding that really, really helps people understand the the why of things now. Yeah, I, did, uh, yeah, I think that's super important. I always think a really good starting point with things like mm. things, especially black holes, is, is the history of them. Because how we get mm. to how we know about them is just it is actually quite ridiculous isn't it i mean it's it, yeah it really is <laughs> it really is so with that take us on a journey then because obviously we start with einstein and it's kind of almost like a sort of mathematical sort of anomaly really in it that comes mm. out of it so einstein himself though never even heard the phrase black hole did he Nope. And he never even predicted their existence. It was not something he was ever involved with. And I think that's one of the many misconceptions people have about black holes to start off with as well. So when you think about the history of black holes, I love to remind people of those sort of almost that chronologicalness of also how young the field actually is Mm -hmm. as well, because it is something that feels like it's pervaded sort of the psyche for for a while, but it's been a long time coming. So even the phrase black hole didn't exist really until the late 60s uh, in terms of both public and the scientific community. They were referred to as gravitationally completely collapsed objects <laughs> or GCCOs, which I always joke if we do the modern day thing of astronomy and making an acronym, that's what we'd all say we'd be working on. And it would sound terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things getting the, the order of it right. Even thinking that we landed on the moon in 1969 before we realized that the center of the Milky Way, that all the stars in the Milky Way are orbiting is a supermassive black hole. Hell, even before like we'd observed the first black hole and found the first evidence for a black hole in the universe as well, which was sort of towards the late 70s. So it's incredible to think how much research was done by the likes of Hawking and Penrose on those weird mathematical curiosities of singularities, this point in space where you couldn't define how strong gravity was because essentially you had to divide by zero and your maths just completely imploded. Um, you know, all of that work was done before even black holes were found or understood to be real objects. Mm. They were always these strange hypothetical curiosities that, for example, Arthur Eddington, a giant of the physics world, right, in the early 20th century, he argued like to his death almost profusely against this idea of a black hole, this almost gravitational collapse of, say, you know, the end of a life of a star. He he would said there has to be some law of physics that exists to prevent this unnatural thing from occurring. And it was essentially Hawking and Penrose that went, actually, it would be quite natural for it to occur in physics, in, in, mm. in nature. Um, and so yeah, we've we've come a long way from the early 20th century. Yeah, indeed. In fact, in fact, Roger Penrose, his Nobel Prize that he only got a couple of years ago, mm. wasn't it? Was was that for that particular yeah. work that he was doing? Would would Hawkins have shared that with him, or or, or was it more of a Penrose thing? Do you know? I think he probably would have if he'd perhaps been alive. Um, yeah, Hawking and Penrose really did that work together on proving that, you know, this idea of how we mathematically describe a black hole and this singularity were natural and would exist. And that Penrose ended up sharing it with Genzel and Getz, who were essentially the first people to look at the very center of the Milky Way, look at the stars orbiting the very center and from their orbits work out how massive the thing was in the middle that they were orbiting around 
and essentially got a number that was four million times the mass of the sun, which at the time there was a lot of arguments about, oh, could it be a swarm of black holes? Because we can't see anything Mm. that's there. A swarm of black holes would be incredibly unstable. So the only other option was a supermassive black hole. And that was the late 90s, early 2000s. That was that was the only time that we then were like, oh, there's a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. And if we think about how young, therefore, this field of supermassive black hole studies is, I think that really puts it into perspective. But it, I think it's really great that they then shared that prize with Penrose, who did you know the early graft work almost yeah. in in the in the sixties. Yeah. So we, we, was the thing that precipitated that Nobel Prize, as in you know, oh, this is this is a thing now. Is is it the photo of the black hole? Is that one of the sort of pieces of evidence that everyone was sort of waiting for in terms of, yeah, okay, we can give this Nobel Prize out. You know, what? why the wait? I, mean, I know it's recent, but why a 20-year wait before they sort of dish it out? The image was of the supermassive black hole at the centre of a different galaxy, so Messier 87, rather than the centre mm. of our Milky Way galaxy, which we actually only got this year because turned out to be a much more difficult image reduction because there's lots of dust you have to look through to the centre of the Milky Way that complicated things. But I think, yeah, that image was essentially like, this is the prediction that general relativity gives us, and then here's the image we got, and hey, they look almost pretty much identical, which is incredible, incredible to see. Um, And so I think that was really what precipitated it was this confirmation almost that we see this shadow of this black hole, this almost prison where you're not getting any more light from because the light's being trapped inside of it. Um, I think that was almost the confirmation that Yes. Okay. This is the sort of the last thing, the observation, because you'll notice that with Nobel Prizes is that you can have some theoretical prediction, like for example, the Higgs boson in particle physics, something like that. But the prize won't be awarded until you have this observational confirmation of something um, being true. And black holes was this area of astrophysics that had never been uh, ever sort of recognized by the Nobel Prize Committee. Uh, and so seeing that recognized finally, I'm sure that was a massive decision for them mm. on who to recognize because there's obviously a lot of people done work in this field. Um, but recognizing that it was the 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 work done in the center of the Milky Way that was really the concrete evidence that we had for supermassive black holes and black holes in general existing was was really great to see that recognized. As a kid, I remember people talking about black holes. And obviously there was a few mm. films that came out in the 70s and early <laughs> 80s about black holes and things like that. Yeah, But they were still considered a kind of, they don't really exist. They're sort of just a, you know, yeah. particularly when it came to things like wormhole versions of it but but. well yeah this is the thing they're so often confused with wormholes and i put this down to basically like sci-fi in Mm. the 80s and 90s just basically just using them interchangeably and it's like no they could do completely (laughs) different things one hypothetical and one actually observed yeah but i I guess back in the 70s and 80s they're they're, they're both Mm. really this in in the same category there because they're both hypothetical aren't they i mean it's it's at what point what point do you do you think in terms of your community, in terms of the astrophysics community, mm. you started to feel as though now the black hole's not a is not hypothetical. It's 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 obviously a real it's a real thing. I mean, I don't I didn't really live through it. I really only joined the community in 2013 when was when I sort of started my PhD. So uh, almost to me, I use the phrase, there's a supermassive black hole at the center of every galaxy. I had to take mm. it for granted, you know, it's just this phrase that is and was and always was be, always will be. Um, which is obviously not the case. But I mean, looking back through the sort of history in terms of the publications that were being written at the time, I think there was this almost inevitability of 
black hole's existence definitely through the sort of late 80s, early 90s in terms of smaller black holes in the Milky Way. So these things that are formed at the end of supernovas and the inevitability around the late 90s, early 2000s of supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. And I think it was just one of those things that just became, there was just overwhelming evidence for it, that it wasn't something that you could really deny at the end of the day. And it was it was just sort of a big snowball, essentially, from discovering the sort of first candidate black hole that was, you know, formed at the, from the death of a super, uh, death of a star in a supernova to the supermassive black holes at the center of, say, the Milky Way in the early 2000s, to the point where, like, you know, people were hedging their bets through the 90s. So supermassive black holes, for example, were referred to as massive dark objects, MDOs, again, <laughs> I guess, if you want. Uh, and you see that all through the 90s, and, and eventually that acronym, acronym shifted to SMBH, supermassive black hole. Yeah. So do, do people know how supermassive black holes Form, or is that still a little bit of a mystery? A little bit of a mystery, yes, because the only process that we know conf- that we know forms a black hole is a supernova, the death of a massive star. Um, so the outer layers of the star get thrown off, and the core will collapse down into a black hole because there's nothing to resist gravity anymore because there's no longer any nuclear fusion resisting that push uh, inwards, pushing outwards. Um, so the mass of a black hole that you would form in a supernova would be anywhere from, say, three to four times the mass of the sun, all the way up to maybe 30, 40, 50. We're not entirely sure of the upper limit. There are some suggestions that stars can just collapse straight down into a black hole as well uh, from recent observations as well. So that could be anywhere up to maybe, let's say, 100 times the mass of the sun. Getting from that mass up to millions to billions of times the mass of the sun is the interesting question, especially because we see these supermassive black holes, you know, only a billion years into the universe's lifetime. And the question has always been, there is literally not enough time to have grown a black hole from say 10 times the mass of the sun to a million times the mass of the sun in, in just a billion years in that time frame. Because this is the other common misconception about black holes is that these endless hoovers, vacuum cleaners, just sucking everything up. But actually most material will just happily orbit a black hole in the same way that most material in the solar system just happily orbits the sun and is not falling into the sun. So it's very difficult to grow a black hole. And there's been sort of these ideas of whether... Maybe we just don't understand the growth of black holes in the early universe. um, And, uh, you know, maybe they can grow at a greater rate than we ever thought they could. Uh, And maybe that would be the case. And so it's this sort of like chicken or the egg scenario that we've currently got going on in terms of how supermassive black holes form at the centers of galaxies. Do you have a galaxy of stars form first? One goes supernova. That grows uh, its black hole and becomes the heaviest thing in the galaxy and sinks to the center and then from there grows to become supermassive in some process we don't quite understand? Or do you have a gas cloud in the early universe that collapses straight down into a black hole, skips becoming a star, somehow, you know, is stopped from collapsing into a star and instead becomes, reaches this critical mass at which point it collapses into a black hole. Then that becomes this sort of gravitational shepherd for everything around it and a galaxy of stars will form around this black hole. Well, I'm, um, I mean, that's pretty. That's that. That is a pretty big distinction, isn't it? I mean, that that presumably yeah. is. I mean, that must be one of the sort of biggest questions in 
in cosmology, surely that you, you've got you've got. You Maybe know. not in cosmology right now. They're very distracted at the minute by trying to solve their big model of the universe. But in my field, one hundred percent, yes, okay. it's the big question that we all want answered because. If there was this, this direct collapse scenario, you would probably start with something that was maybe 10,000 times the mass of the sun, in which case you could grow to supermassive black hole status in, in the time that's available. Um, and it is something that we hope the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to answer. It's been designed to see back to these first stars and first galaxies forming. And if you do have this big cloud of gas that's somehow being stopping, stopped to form stars, it's probably going to be very hot because... Rather counterintuitively, you need cold gas to form stars because the molecules can't move very fast. Otherwise, gravity won't be able to clump them together to become dense enough to start nuclear fusion. So if you've got instead a very hot, big cloud of gas that's just drawing in more and more stuff from around it because it's a very large amount of stuff in the universe, and so gravity is sort of starting to take hold, a hot gas will probably glow if it's got maybe some nearby stars that are irradiating it with ultraviolet light as well. So we're hoping to be able to see that sort of glow of these big glass clouds. And there has been some hints with the Hubble Space Telescope. There was something called Cosmic Redshift 7 or CR7 that was sort of nicknamed by the Portuguese uh, discoverers of this object because it's Cristiano Ronaldo is seven. Oh, no. his number. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's where the name comes oh, from. No. And um, <laughs> I, I think it's quite funny, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, they they sort of found hints that that could be uh, this sort of gas cloud that could directly collapse into a supermassive black hole. And so we're hoping with the James Webb Space Telescope, it might be able to find more of these things, more study on them to figure out what they actually are and whether they really are maybe the progenitors of supermassive black holes. And finally answer this question of, did the galaxy form first, did the black hole form first, the astrophysics chicken or the egg? <laughs> with with James Webb looking at these early early stars then, mm. is it is it the early stars as well? Because I, I remember a previous guest was was sort of saying that the the very first set of stars that came along, not much is known about that. And of course, Hubble's not just not powerful enough to see them. Mm -mm. Is 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 James Webb going to be of that sort of order of power that he's actually going to be able to sort of make head nor tail of those kind of first stars? And therefore, is that part of that answer towards your black hole conundrum? Yeah, I mean, it, that's exactly what Webb's been designed for, is essentially to see what we call first light in the universe um, and really getting to grips with, okay, well, what were those stars made of? I mean, we presume it's almost pristine hydrogen gas, essentially. And if that's the case, can they somehow burn more efficiently uh, in terms of nuclear fusion? And in which case, can they therefore be bigger than stars hmm. today? And maybe that might be a shortcut for making larger black holes because these things could then direct collapse down as soon as the uh, the fuel runs out, essentially. And you would maybe start with something that was a thousand times the mass of the sun, but you had a star that was living its life like that as well that could collapse into a black hole. So there's lots and lots of questions there. And yes, because James Webb has been designed to have this bigger mirror so it can collect more light because of this bigger mirror, in which case it can see fainter things, therefore further away things, um, therefore see the light that has been traveling the longest, the furthest distance. But also we have to remember that the light that has been traveling the greatest distance in the universe has also been redshifted the most. So there is physically a limit to which the Hubble Space Telescope, viewing the universe in the optical sort of spectrum, the visible spectrum that we see with our eyes, it cannot see at a greater distance anymore because the light has been redshifted so much to longer wavelengths that 
it's no longer visible light. It's infrared light. And so is that expand? Is that is that um, redshift caused by the expansion expansion of the universe rather than anything else? Exactly. Yeah, there is some contributions from the fact that, that this light will go past quite massive galaxies as well. So you'll get what's known as a gravitational redshift. Uh, which also happens around black holes too. Um, but the, the majority of the redshift will come from the fact that the universe is expanding. Hmm. Um, and so from the amount of expansion, uh, from the amount that the light is redshifted, which you get sort of from these very handy marker points where you have molecules giving off very specific wavelengths of light at these huge sort of like peaks of light if you split it uh, into a spectrum and sort of draw this trace of how much of each wavelength you're receiving, you can then pinpoint, oh, that's, given off by hydrogen gas at this wavelength normally, but now it's been redshifted to this wavelength. Wow, this galaxy of stars is this far away. And that's how we get at that that overall redshift of these, these galaxies as well. So it's uh, incredible, the, the redshift. So we don't sort of talk about it in terms of distance or light travel time amongst us astrophysicists. We will say, oh, this, this galaxy is at redshift seven or redshift eight uh, and stuff like that. And, and with Hubble, we were pushing sort of redshift, yeah, seven to nine-ish. There was, you know, sort of uh, maybe some qualifications of, of other things where it was like, really, have you pushed that far? Redshift 11, probably not. But with JWST, I've already seen claims of a redshift 20 galaxy, what? which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of time, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's pushing back that more. It's only a couple hundred million years, but that makes all the difference in terms of getting back to those those first stars that were that were forming. So um, it's incredible to see all these images coming through in James coming through from James Webb in real time, sort of being posted all the time to the the archive where the Space Telescope Science Institute manages, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope. That's another thing. People always say, we've had just these five images. Is that it? You know, and I'm like, no, there's new stuff being posted all the time. It's just not being put out as a press release mm. by NASA or anything. Um, seeing those images come in in real time and then see sort of the community scramble to, you know, analyze these first images we're getting because people are so excited to get their hands finally on this data. You know, people have been working almost with, you know, simulated data for so long that they were like, this is what James Webb's data is going to look like. So I'll build my tools to to work on this. And then they finally can just plug in the real data and, and you know, hit the ground running with the science. And um, it's just fun to see that happening and papers getting published all the time with these new uh you know, this new kind of data and also this, these new tools and almost like new phrases and terminology we're having to get used to as a community as well and getting used to say things like Redshift 20 just being a normal thing that you could probe that you couldn't perform. So the, the, the people that the, the people in charge of uh, of JWST and pointing it in, in, the, in the places mm. where everyone wants to go, presumably this is like just 24-7, that, they're, that, that yeah. they're, they're having to do this like every single, you know, at the end of that observation time, it's on to the next, on to the next, on to the next, and you've just got to keep going and go because it's got this kind of limited lifespan. You're trying to get as much as possible out of it. Is, is there any sort of time set aside for sort of calibrating, upgrading and all those kind of things to see if you can get eek out a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. All that kind of stuff is being set aside, you know, as, as they go in terms of like if there is any tweaks needed. There's obviously a very rigorous schedule that's been set a few years ago now. Like I remember the uh, proposal sort of 
uh, tool being opened back in probably 2017, maybe 2018 to say, let us know what you would want to do with JWST. And obviously there was a huge influx from across the entire community of, of proposals put in that was way more time than they ever could have given out, <laughs> you know, and this, this, this will happen every year now. And they're working with that schedule of the proposals that were essentially successful. At the minute, they're obviously, they've, they've got it to where, you know, that they, they want it to, to be peak performance in terms of what they know it could do and what they planned for it to do. But as they get to know the telescope better, there might be certain things that they can do in terms of tweaks to improve performance or um, in, in some way, or there might be some tool that can do some post-processing to improve it as well. So again, we're still learning as we go. You know, you, you, you obviously design a telescope and, and you launch it, but, you know, working with the telescope you designed and working with the telescope that's actually currently working in space are two very different things. Yeah. And so I think at the minute, it's still very much a learning curve for everyone involved, whether it is, you know, the people who are doing the science with the date, with the images, or even the people who are just, you know, in control of the telescope right now and sending the commands and getting that data back down. I think it's a learning curve for everybody. Yeah. I mean, with, with something like JWST, with it, with, Every time, every time a sort of new type of observatory is built, or a new, you know, every time you sort of increase the power, particularly by an order of magnitude, there always seems to be a new phenomena in space that has everyone scratching their heads. Like you know, things like FRBs and and well, mm -hmm. I guess the black hole in the first place, you know. And and so it was. Is are we getting hints already that that JWST might might have started picking up things like that, or do we, or do you think that that's not going to be likely with something like JWST? I think it's very likely we'll get stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't heard hints of there being any what we, what we call essentially serendipitous discoveries, like stuff that you know it wasn't planned for. Like JWST has been designed for loads of different science cases, and all of that is you know hitting us now and hitting headlines and everything. But in terms of serendipitous discoveries, I just don't think we can call what it's going to be. And especially, I think we could be making these serendipitous discoveries many years into the future on data that's being mm. taken now. Because the beauty of JWST is, you know, one scientist comes with this proposal that they're like, I want to observe this thing. Let's say it's supernova 1987A in the Large Magellanic Cloud or something, right? Let's say they want to observe this specific thing with one of the instruments on board JWST. The beauty of JWST is that as one instrument focuses on that specific patch of sky that that target is in, all the other instruments are also taking light, but from adjacent patches of sky at the same time, like within the field of view of the telescope. So yes, you focus on the one thing that you plan to observe, but then you also get bonus data from the four other instruments that you didn't plan for at all in a random patch of sky. And I think in that respect, we're going to be, you know, sort of still sifting our way through that kind of data in, in years to come. I think there's going to be projects that are specifically like JWST archival bonus data projects mm. because the scientist who applied for that one specific observation on supernova 1987A is going to grab that data and be like, right, I've got so much to do. <laughs> They're yeah. probably not going to look at, you know, the bonus stuff that they got. So this is why I think we can't call what JWST is going to reveal. Um, and I, I think there's been so many times in history where people have been like, oh yeah, astrophysics, we're pretty close to figuring all that out, right? And then there's been this new surprise that we're like, oh, nope. 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 Well, I mean, yeah, well, well the, the expansion rate of the universe. Oh, what's this? Mm. It's, ex 
It's yeah. not just expanding. The expansion's exactly. increasing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and yeah, and that's just a sort of weird 90s film. I mean, I mean that just is, that. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. It seems to be an incredibly, and I've, the amount of times I've said this on the podcast, it just seems to be, you know, the last sort of 30 years of, of astronomy. It seems to be the most exciting time that has, that has ever been, but just not in a kind of in the way that you'd expect it in terms of virtually any mm. field of science, but it does seem as though astronomy is even more so than virtually anything else. I mean, like particle physics almost got bogged down, but astronomy seems to be completely the opposite. Mm. There seems to be so much going on and, and mainly driven by this, you know, new technologies. I think it's interesting that you said 30 years because obviously Hubble launched in 1990, about 30 years ago, and that was the first telescope to have a digital detector on the back, one of these new CCDs that had just been invented, essentially because astronomers were calling for a better way of recording light from their telescopes. They didn't just want to use bulky photographic plates anymore. And so I think that's really what's massively benefited modern day astronomy is being able to do that across the entire spectrum, X-ray, gamma ray, infrared, visible light, and, and, and those observ- and radio, all of those observations improving and improving with, with all of this new technology that's developed as well. So I think that's what's massively been the thing in the past 30 years. I don't know whether, I think I'd argue whether it's not the most exciting time. I always say I would have loved to have lived during the time when, you know, sort of Edwin Hubble figuring out that the Andromeda Nebula, as mm, it was called then, yeah, yeah. was not in our own Milky Way galaxy, but was actually an island of stars in its own right. And oh, all of these other things are islands of stars in their own right. And wow, the universe is so much bigger than we thought well, it yeah, I mean, ever you, was. You, you could go, you could also <laughs> say Newton and Galileo. I mean, how, how amazing to be Galileo and go, oh my God, what, what's going on at, <laughs> at Jupiter yeah. and being the first person to see Jupiter's moons. I mean, that's just mm. bonkers. Yeah. I mean, he also, with his telescope, was the first person to realize that the Milky Way, which was just this splodge across the sky, was made up of individual stars, that the light of which all bled together. So again, I think Galileo... Yeah, G- Galileo probably... Yeah, that was like a sort of early growth spurt. I'll yeah. get, It's like a sort of... That's its infants. Well, even then, it's not really the infancy, is it? Because mm. you go back to the Babylonians, but... Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. But I mean, it's, I mean so much stuff seems to be happening. I mean, you've got uh, multi-messenger astronomy as well i mean presumably that that must be incredibly important for your field of work the things like ligo yeah. and yeah 100 percent. like ligo is really giving us the limits to black holes and neutron stars and literally at what point does the neutron star become a black hole what's that maximum mass it's really drilling down on what that is because you know as you get to that point it's the theory is it sort of gets a little bit like, well, we don't know because we've never been able to, you know, mm. understand what matter like this is like. And you get all these relativistic effects that you have to take into account and everything. So LIGO is great in the sense that we can finally get observations on that. Um, and also, you know, in, in terms of gravitational waves, it's almost energy released by the collision of two black holes. And again, that this comes into growth of black holes too, because you could have this, this merger of two black holes. That would be incredible. But then also, you know, you have this idea of, multi-wavelength astronomy as well. Um, Not just seeing a a galaxy or a star or anything like that in uh, visible light, but across, you know, the entire electromagnetic spectrum and that giving you so much more information. 
So when we had the LIGO uh, discovery of the neutron star, neutron star merger that made a black hole at the end, mm-hmm. but that because it was neutron stars, it gave out light beforehand. And it was it was the worst kept secret in the entirety of astronomy because literally every telescope in the world turned to look at this thing. And everyone <laughs> was like, there's nothing there though. Like, what, what could it be? Um, it, it was, you know, these are all these Twitter bots now as well. That's like the Hubble Space Telescope is currently looking at this for blah person. And you're like... Well, that person works on gravitational waves, so I wonder what that could be. Um, you know, it was the worst kept secret. But you know, having that idea of not just multi messenger but multi wavelength astronomy on this one specific target, coming at it from literally every single, you know, tool we have in our arsenal, uh, and I think that's that's what the past thirty years has given us is the ability to do that. Yeah, it's just coming from everywhere, isn't it? All the all the different mm. bits of data. I mean, that's a really interesting element of you, you've got this diary that that James Webb is having to fulfil of <laughs> of everything it is. But but yeah, you're right. Someone at LIGO could then phone up the peep, the peeps at JWST and say, right, I, I need you to look at this. Is that really annoying for the person that had diary time on there uh, on the JWST? <laughs> I think it, it gets rescheduled. I don't think they're ever sort of like kicked off necessarily. Um, that's the beauty of space telescopes is that if there is something that has to be rearranged for, you know, that doesn't uh, derail an entire trip, for example. So I had time on the um, the uh, Isaac Newton telescope on the island of La Palma um, last year, twice. The first time there was a freak snowstorm, the first time it had ever snowed in Madrid for 50 years or something, it also hit La Palma and the telescopes froze shut. The second time, uh, the volcano on the island of La Palma erupted. So yeah, you know, these kind of things, you know, if you're over there, if you're on a trip, it it definitely disrupts. But with a space telescope, it's obviously uh, all set and uh, you have all the team, the observations teams that are sorting out, uh, that run the telescope day to day as well. So it's really out of your hands. Um, which is in one respect great. You're just sort of sat around waiting for data more than anything. You should have a bit of a longer wait, I guess. What's wonderful is to know that JWST is going to be a tool that is used like that. And I don't think anyone in the community would begrudge it. It's sort of someone calling them up and going, quick, no, look at this thing. Um, And we've actually got that coming up with the DART mission as well, NASA's DART mission that's due to impact with an asteroid on Monday, the 26th of September. Um, so I don't know when this podcast is going out. Maybe it's happened before then. Yeah, um, just have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope it happened successfully. But I know that the, J- the James Webb Space Telescope will also be used to look at the asteroid system that it's colliding with, to look at the aftermath, essentially, of that impact, which is essentially a test to see if we could deflect an asteroid if an asteroid was ever a, a you know a hazardous to Earth. The asteroid it's impacting is not a hazard to Earth. It won't be a hazard mm. to Earth after the impact either. I feel like we should say that. Um and uh, it's, it's great to know that the JWST is just, it exists now as a tool. It's not something that the entire astro community are like, oh, when JWST launches, oh, when it's finally ready, you know, and it gets pushed back and it gets pushed back and it gets pushed back. It's up there now. And you can go, yeah, let's use it to do this thing. And it, it's great to know that it's, yeah, this tool you can whip out the back pocket when you need it. Yeah. I mean, and what, I mean, it's, I mean, I always, uh, currently when anyone sort of, sort of, belittles humans i always think well well but let's have a just look at the james webb telescope that's out there orbiting a lagrange point and it's just this ridiculous piece of equipment that picks up the heat of something that happened 13 billion years ago and you go yeah, yeah i think that's i think that's pretty good i think that's uh, it, i mean yeah, yeah. it's it's incredible You've got lots of different things that James Webb telescopes up to, which is that you know even things like I noticed recently they were pointing it at uh, Jupiter to have a look mm. at Jupiter. So you have got solar system stuff, you have got black hole stuff, you've got uh, uh, you know other other 
astronomical points. Is there a is there a sort of pecking order of who who like exo? <laughs> I mean, like the people in the exoplanets. Surely they they mm. they feel as though they they should get most time on it. Is there is there a pecking order of out there? I don't think there's a, there isn't a pecking order. There's just the the you know the very standard proposal system that we've had in place in astronomy for a very long time that you put in your proposal, and then the time allocation committee will technically rank the proposals. So maybe there's a pecking order, but it's supposed to be independent of field necessarily. Having said that, though, obviously, JWST was designed to do various different things. There were sort of five main science goals, including, you know, first stars and exoplanets and things like that. My field of very nearby galaxy studies in terms of the supermassive black holes in the center, I like to be able to resolve the shape of the galaxy around them as well. Hence, they need to be nice and nearby. I like pretty things, Mm. not just little tiny pixel blobs. Um, And that my field in, in that respect probably was left out of that, you know, five main science goals because it wasn't necessarily obvious what it would be used for in that field, it was very much being targeted. There was a very much specific reason it needed to be an exoplanet because they wanted to look at the atmospheres and things like water and carbon dioxide. Those kind of elements show up in the infrared. And first light, you can only see that light in the infrared. Hmm. So it was obviously a very good reason to have it there. With my field, it was sort of like, well, we'll just wait and see what it can do once it's up there, yeah. <laughs> to be quite honest. And I've already had that eureka moment of being like, oh, it can it can do that. That's in- I didn't even think, you know, we could write a proposal right now. Let's get it to do this thing. So in the first images that it released, there was the the image of the four galaxies, five galaxies all interacting, Stefan's quintet, um, four galaxies interacting, one in the foreground. And the one at the very top has this incredibly bright thing in the very center that almost looks like a star. It has that distinctive sort of eight-point star shape that we're getting very used to seeing with Mm. the James Webb Space Telescope that's essentially the shape that's created as the light travels through the optic system uh, in the telescope. And basically, you you really see it when something is incredibly, incredibly bright. Uh, And that thing in the center is not the star, it's the supermassive black hole. (laughs) And that's another misconception, is that people think black holes are black, but they're actually some of the brightest objects in the entire universe. I mean, it's not the black hole itself because nothing can escape a black hole, but it's the the gas that is spiraling around the black hole that is moving at such incredible speeds that it's heated up so that it essentially glows across, you know, visible, infrared, light, everything. And so you actually see that light with JWST in the infrared, especially because it can peer through dust as well. So dust you know, just big lumps of, you know, molecules of heavier elements like oxygen, nitrogen, that kind of thing. Like supernova poop is what I I like to call it. Um, That can block visible light because it's a similar size to sort of the wavelength of visible light. But infrared just happily goes around it. So as you peer into the center of galaxies that are very dusty, often it's hidden from you that the supermassive black hole in the center does have this gas swirling around it and eventually will be, you know, accreted, as we say, you know, eaten by the black hole, if you will. Um, and with JWST, it reveals it sort of in all its glory that it's there to the point where if you look at the the deep field images from JWST and you look at all those tiny background galaxies, in some of them, you can see that eight-pointed star shape. It's faint, but it's there. So not only are you seeing the shape of these very distant galaxies for the first time, but you also know there's a growing supermassive black hole in them. And you're seeing that back at higher and higher redshift earlier in the in the universe than we've ever seen before. And that's going to give us a much better idea of, you know, how do supermassive black holes grow and at what rate, at what times in the universe. So seeing that was my like, 
I'm in love with this thing. Yeah, no, <laughs> that it can do that. Yeah, I, I do like its little signature. Its signature eight points. Yeah, that's you know we got used to Hubble's, and then and then now you've got this. So you know you know kind of which which telescope mm. is giving you the pretty picture at any one time. Because yeah, it's four points with Hubble, isn't it? Because it has yeah. a circular mirror. And James Webb has this six sided mirror hexagon um, with the tripod that gets in the way as well. So it ends up <laughs> as an eight point star. I mean that's incredible, isn't it? What I what I love about those. Look, the things that you've just mentioned is you've got these absolutely enormous objects, but of course, un- understanding them and obviously that 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 thing about black holes uh, is that they're so that everything's moving so fast and everything's so big and, and the physics is so crazy that you're actually having to rely on 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 sort of particle physicists and quantum physicists knowing what they're doing. So you've got these people working at the ridiculously small end and people mm-hmm. like you working at the like the absolute, we're talking about these ridiculously huge objects and and yet to understand them, you kind of have to know both. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's why I love physics, like in a nutshell, is that you get to deal with the ridiculously small and the ridiculously large and everything in between. Um, you know, we joke that chemistry can be explained in a page of physics and technically biology is just a <laughs> tiny small corner of the universe that people are explaining. And, you know, it's sort of the, the one true science to rule them all. It's put a little Lord of the Rings reference there. Yeah. You've got a book out at the moment uh, mm-hmm. about black holes. What, what made you decide to write that? Yeah, I mean, it's called A Brief History of Black Holes. And as I said at the beginning, it's it's really wanting to challenge a lot of all the misconceptions that I constantly hear from people being like black holes are these hoovers they're black you know they're the brightest objects in the universe you know Einstein invented black holes no 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 and and trying to get across that almost why we think what we do and how we figured out so much of what we know about black holes and also reminding people that it is still in its infancy as well and I think it just gives through the history and, and almost the human stories behind it as well you get a much better understanding for what they are. And I learned so much writing this book as well about how everything, you know, fits in together and when things happened. And that was, you know, incredible. And I think it was just a book that I've always wanted to write because I've always loved black holes and been fascinated by them. And um, yeah, just being able to share that, you know, sort of the knowledge I have from all of the research side of things and then putting it together with that sort of human history side of things was, was fabulous. So I really hope people like it. <laughs> it's got a beautiful cover. They essentially, my publishers asked me, what do you want the cover to look like? And I was like, make it pretty and make it shiny. <laughs> and I think they delivered on both of those fronts as well. Excellent. When, when, does it, when does the book come out? Is it already out? The book is out now. Yes, it's out in hardback, uh, e- like an ebook version and also an audiobook version, which I narrated myself oh, wow. well, so you was oh, really fun. Yeah. Oh, wow. That must've taken you. How long did that take? That always uh, three days. Oof. Three days. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, that's that's hard. Only because I wasn't allowed to talk at my usual very fast pace. <laughs> <laughs> Had to do it. Yeah, did did someone sort of take your first chapter and say you've got you've talked too fast? They they were prepped ahead of time and they were like, okay, so remember, slow, <laughs> slow. Brilliant. Down. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's that awesome. Right. Yeah, I, I'm going to immediately download that. I didn't realize it was on Audible. I'm going to d- definitely download that yeah. for my car journeys. I absolutely love. I love Audible books for, for that kind nice. of stuff. The only, yeah, the only problem with is it's quite hard to sort of skip back when you've said something amazing and, I, and I'm driving <laughs> and I go, what did you know? What did you say? <laughs> that's, that's my, yeah. that's, that's the only, that's the only annoying thing with that. So yeah, you, you, you were writing, so you've, you've, you've written this book about, uh, about black holes when you're doing your research mm. is, 
because often, obviously, the, the way I do the podcast often is is I, I'll have something like you know I'll be looking at news stories from Nature or something like that for the latest kind of science papers mm-hmm. on on a particular subject, and I'll try and wade through the actual uh, science paper itself. Uh, on uh, and but I often notice, obviously, you, you get the abstract, and it's quite it's quite you, you, it's quite easy to understand, and then it goes into the actual how you've done it, and it's incredibly complicated, and you go, mm-hmm. what what on earth's going on? Do you, do you ever when you're when you're actually working and you're kind of everything seems a little bit abstracted and it sort of goes into maths and it obviously goes into statistics and and mm. you're just really sort of number crunching data and sticking things into computers is it always really nice to then go back and actually sort of try and tell the story of what's actually happening rather than just it being a bunch of numbers it can be yeah and it's one of the reasons I love making videos for YouTube as well is that a it's a very creative process And also it's a very short term process. Research takes a really long time. Like you can be working on a project for a year or more, whereas my YouTube videos are one a week and I'm done, you know, (laughs) that's off the desk. So that's a nice, and that's another reason why I love the book as well was sort of that very creative process of writing um, as opposed to the very dry sort of scientific writing that it's very, you know, concise and to the point. You, You could have a bit obviously more fun with it and stuff like that. Um, so it was nice to just have the juxtaposition, but also to be able to work my own sort of research into the book as well, because I think that was always so important to me was, you're going to do a history of black holes, you've got to get to where you are now and and say, here's all the stuff we still don't know and the stuff we're still working on and, and trying to answer right now as well. Um, so being able to marry the two was was really, really um, rewarding. Yeah, so so after over the last few years, say, where in 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 your field what are the sort of things that you've been working on what are the questions you've been trying to answer and what are the what are the sort of questions that you have been answering and, and feel as though that you you've got a pretty satisfactory answer mm. even in the sort of recent history so i've got two big questions i work on right now and one is can supermassive black holes kill galaxies <laughs> <laughs> in in essence yeah, nice. <laughs> so if you if you have this this very turbulent region around a black hole where you've got gas spiraling in getting very very hot you can end up with the black hole doing an almost sort of burp of energy outwards we call these outflows or jets sometimes they've got magnetic fields get involved and it's not an energy from the black hole it's from these very turbulent regions around it where it's almost there's, there's too much pressure there and that has to be released that expulsion of energy can travel throughout the entire galaxy we think theoretically we need that to happen because essentially what we think happens is that it removes the gas you would need to make new stars sort of the shock wave through the galaxy and then you stop all this star formation and then a galaxy doesn't grow any bigger it starts to die off and we need that to happen to essentially make our simulations of the universe match what we see in the observed universe but we've never actually observed any evidence for that happening across sort of the entire galaxy population. We've seen sort of very niche, like in one galaxy, this happened, but in this galaxy, this happened. And that's basically one of my questions is trying to prove that's happening on a a big galaxy wide scale. So that's very much big statistics kind of work. My other question I look at is how do supermassive black holes grow? Because for a long time, the one way or the, 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 the way that was thought to dominate their growth was that, you have two galaxies, each with a supermassive black hole in the middle. Those two galaxies collide and merge, and the two black holes in the middle will collide and merge. And therefore, basically, like you could double a black hole's mass in that way. So um, that was sort of the, the one idea, because you could see this really like clear correlation between the, 
massive a galaxy and massive a black hole as well. Um, but my work actually showed that you still get that correlation in a galaxy that's never had a merger before. So something that is pure spiral galaxy left on its own its entire life, it's never been disturbed, it's very happy as it is, still got very massive, supermassive black hole. So you say, well, okay, well, how did they get that big if if they've never had the merger, which is the dominant way we think that they grow? Um, and actually my research, slowly but surely, has overturned this idea, along with all my collaborators as well across observational work and simulation work, sort of showing that actually... galaxies seem to be able to grow their own black hole sort of in a very slow and steady tortoise style (laughs) wins the race. Um, And that is actually the dominant way it happens in between all these big galaxy mergers that seem to sort of, you know, distract us all because they're the sort of... Well, are are they like sort of... The the galaxy mergers, are they sort of a shortcut to it? And presumably, like you said, they lose their... They lose their nice spirally shapes. They, mm. They're a bit more boring, aren't they? The sort of yeah, the, those blobs. Yeah, blobs. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, yeah, you're seeing these absolutely enormous ones in these pristine mm. galaxies that have remained. Yes. Yeah, that's that's super interesting, isn't it? Have you any idea how that happens? Yeah, so we, we pretty much got to the point where we're like, okay, we're pretty sure this is the dominant way it happens, but we have no idea how or what's going on inside the galaxy. So that's basically the next stage now is sort of saying, okay, is it, say the spiral arms funneling gas down them towards the black hole or is the galaxy somehow able to take like cold gas from the sort of what we call the galaxy halo around it where there's no stars but there's just this sort of like big lump of gas because it's gravitationally attracted to the fact that you've got this big galaxy there that's very massive as well um, or is sometimes you get this bar structure through galaxies. I don't mm. know if you've seen this, where this is a long, thin thing and you get the arms out of the ends. Maybe that somehow funnels gas down the center. Um, and, and so there's lots of different mechanisms we think could do it. And in simulations, maybe it looks like they could do it. But proving that is obviously, with observations, is the really difficult thing. You have to look to see if you can see some sort of gas flows in the galaxy. Um, or you can sort of say, okay, well, how much is the, the, the black hole growing by and throwing out? How much material is it throwing out? How much is it growing by? Therefore, how much does it have to be funneling to the center? And what processes do simulations say can do that at that rate? You know, there's lots of different sort of angles that you can come at it from. Um, because there's loads of questions that we still yeah. don't know. Again, reminding us that this field of research is definitely still in its infancy, you know, 20 years maybe. And that's it in terms of supermassive black hole research. So, yeah, long way to go. Yeah, so you've got, I mean, you've got the supermassive black hole at the centre of galaxy, but that's not easy. I mean, like the, the galaxy itself is actually just full of black holes. You know, there's lots mm. of stars that must have been popping mm-hmm. up, popping their clogs and collapsing <laughs> into black holes. Do, do, do they actually sort of migrate down towards the the, the, the centre of the galaxy? Or, or like the solar system, if the sun was replaced by a black hole, everything would just mm. carry on orbiting just like before but is, is that the case with with black holes do, do they swarm towards the center or, mm-hmm. or do they roughly stay where they're supposed to stay nope just like stars they'll stay where they're supposed to stay and this is the big issue with how do you grow a supermassive black hole mm. is even the gas will stay where it's supposed to stay unless there's some process to set it tumbling in um and so it actually if you you said then then you know if you replace the sun with a black hole uh, if you took the sun completely out of the solar system the whole thing would completely fall apart. The planets, (laughs) gasteroids, comets would ping off everywhere, right? Because the sun is like 99.999 whatever percent of the mass of the solar system. 
take the black, the supermassive black hole out of the center of the Milky Way and the galaxy would be completely fine because it would be held together by its own, what we call self-gravity. So there's a reason why the Milky Way just isn't some giant big gas disk swirling around the supermassive black hole in the center is because gravity, you know, in the local regions where stars form, you know, is, is stronger from the gravity that's pulling from the black hole. And so that's why you make stars in the first place. Otherwise, if, if you didn't, you, <laughs> everything would just end up in the black hole in the center. Um, so yeah, even if you remove the supermassive black hole, it's, it's such a, a minute, maybe not even 1% of the mass of the entire galaxy. Um, even though it is super massive, it's still very small in comparison. So, you know, the galaxy would be absolutely fine. And this is why we have such a big issue on how do supermassive black holes grow? Yeah, I mean, that, that I have to say that that's a great fact. I've never even thought about that. If you, yeah, I just assumed, yeah, you, if you move, if you removed it, it would, it would cause chaos. But yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's, I'm presumably those, those stars that orbit really close, the ones that sort of go whizzing past, yeah. presumably they're doomed. But no. Uh, Again, on on stable orbits, exactly. Even there was this weird gas cloud that we thought was doomed that was on its way towards the center of the Milky Way, and that somehow looped around unscathed as well, um, fairly close to the black hole. And so it just reminds you that until you get to that point of no return, you know, you can always, especially light and gas and stuff like that, it can still make its way out of there. I mean, it was very spaghettified coming out. <laughs> it's very stretched out, this gas cloud, but um, it was uh, it still made it out. And so I think it's these kind of misconceptions and also this idea of self-gravity mm-hmm. I cover in the book as well, just because, you know, it's, yeah, people haven't stopped to think that if it wasn't for self-gravity, we would just, you know, we wouldn't be a galaxy of stars. We would just be a big gas disk feeding the black hole at the center. That's really cool. <laughs> Yeah. um, Is there anything you'd like to cover? I think the one thing we haven't talked about that I loved learning about for the book Mm -hmm. was where the term black hole comes from. How you go from people talking about gravitationally completely collapsed objects in the 60s to the phrase black hole. It's sort of one of those things that people took on board because of its pithiness and its advertising value, I think it was described as. But it's actually probably the, the phrase that I think causes the most misconceptions for people. Because, I mean, first of all, the picture of black hole is a hole and it, it, it's, mm. you know, couldn't be further from that. It's it's this sort of three-dimensional object almost that started life as a star, which is a 3D object. It just collapsed it down. Uh, I mean, Interstellar did quite a good job of trying to mm. change people's view of what an, a black hole might look like, right? Yeah. Yeah, it did. It had that amazing sort of render of a simulation that was fantastic to see. It was so, so cool on seeing it. But yeah, the, I mean, the phrase black hole, I don't know if you've heard of the black hole of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. a very sad part of history essentially a, a prison cell that was about the size of three double beds put together where uh, a very large number of people British soldiers were imprisoned in it and meant like a good fraction of them didn't survive the night and there is you know memorials across Calcutta in India today to this the, the black hole prison uh, in old Fort William in Calcutta and there was a, a physicist called Robert Dickey who apparently with his family, when anything went missing in their house, they would say, oh, it's gone to the Black Hole of Calcutta. It's, 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 it's gone missing. Mm. And he started to use this phrase to refer to these gravitationally collapsed objects in the sense of this sort of like crush of matter, referring to this crush of, of, of bodies in, in the prison. Um, rather, rather morbid <laughs> yeah. uh, of a phrase. But I think a lot of people have heard of the prison, but presume it, they got, it got its name from black holes when in fact it's the other way around. Um, I thought I, I always thought it was something glib that Fred Hoyle said on a radio show. Or no, something that's like. the Big Bang. Oh, was it Big Bang? Yes, right, Fred okay. Hoyle dubbed the, the Big Bang as, as, as something sort of very, uh, again, like a pithy title to try and get across the yeah. 
the meaning of it. Again, causing massive misconceptions about what the big bank is as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, before before we started recording, I, I you were you were moaning about this idea that that in the, in the press at the moment uh, mm. everyone's well, moaning that press J- is a yes, well, yes, a kind okay. word yeah. for them. <laughs> <laughs> that JWST has discovered that there was no big bang. Yeah, the Big Bang didn't happen is, yeah, is so the headline. Yeah, so give, give us a, a, a quick rundown about how that misconception's come about and and how and actually yeah. how ridiculous it is. Well, almost, I mean, the headline itself, the Big Bang didn't happen, there's so much to unpack there because people think the Big Bang was this moment of almost creation, you know, at time equals zero in the universe's lifetime. And that's not what the Big Bang is. The Big Bang theory describes how the universe has evolved from a very hot, dense state to the cooler state that we see now with all the structures that we have, the galaxies around us. So the Big Bang Theory is essentially 13.8 billion years of evolution of the universe. So to say that didn't happen when you can see the entirety of the universe around you is is, is absolutely perplexing and mind-boggling. Um, I mean, if they're, they're referring to this idea, essentially, that um, James Webb is seeing galaxies uh, spiral galaxies, especially these, these sort of isolated, beautiful, you know, sort of left their own devices galaxies earlier in the universe's history than we ever thought that they could exist. Of course, our models of when we thought they could exist were based on Hubble Space Telescope data, which can only see so far and things start to get blurry after a certain point. So we couldn't resolve the shape of these things. So yes, of course, as we get new data, we need to improve our models. But for some reason, there's this narrative, well, the Big Bang must have never happened if, if this contradicts with our current models. But it's like, no, that's just how science works. Mm. You you base your, your theories and your hypotheses on the evidence you have. And when new evidence comes to light, you go, okay, well, something needs to change. And in this instance, it will be a tweak to, you know, how... galaxies immediately start to form and what fraction of dark matter and normal matter is there and all of this kind of stuff to enable a spiral galaxy to form very early in the universe. It's not going to be some massive change to, you know, the the entire idea of what the Big Bang was or is. And so it's it's just sort of a a misunderstanding of of the scientific process, I think, is what it is. Yeah. Do you know what? I actually think it's probably one of the biggest... As a science communicator, it's the one that you come across the most, isn't it? That that's probably the most irritating is this idea that our oh, scientists said this, and now they're saying this, as mm. though as though somehow they're disconnected. And it's like, well, one is really just a refinement of the other. And yes, yeah. that people didn't understand it, but the whole idea is that we can drop our dogmas and and move mm. on with when go over oh, well, that that was wrong. And mm. and I have to say that is one of the best things about your YouTube channel is that you you pretty much do that every time you, that you're on is you're, you're dealing with one of those kind of things and, and working your way through it in a in a really I think exciting and um constructive way I, I like I, I really don't like the YouTube channels that are kind of taking the mickey out of people for for thinking things like that and it but it's more of a kind of what well, you can you can just explain it rather than be mm-hmm. annoying about it <laughs> Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that so yeah, well well done because I, I I really do like that that sort of that style of science communication. Any anyone who who hasn't seen your channel should immediately go over and start watching it because it is that's brilliant. And and get the book, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I which I am immediately going to do on Audible as soon as we finish. So thanks thank, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was it was a delight. The interplanetary podcast is alive there we go i don't know why I've, a lot of my friends who know that i do like space question mark they're like oh lynn's able to explain black holes i'm like i really kind of can't i do planets 
I, mm. I know that they exist and I know maybe more than the average person, but I really don't know a lot. So it's, it's really cool to listen to people who know so I, much. And this is, yeah, and this is, you know, when you, when you listen to that interview, you realize actually, you know, she's done some very serious research Absolutely. on supermassive black holes and it's like, uh, uh, hence she wins awards and stuff. So it doesn't come out not of nowhere. Only is, yeah. Not only is she a great science communicator, but she's also like, you know, kicking ass in the yeah, field as well. Exactly. So, so that's good. Again, so that's that's feeling amazing. very insecure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Your time will come, Lynn, I'm sure. <laughs> my black hole, so, my yeah. black hole chapter. Yeah. Oh, so talking of black holes, supermassive black holes, I thought I'd, um, I thought I'd find a supermassive black hole story for, for the week. Oh yeah, you know, just to just to follow it up. So I saw on um, the normal place space dot com there Everyone's was a story favorite. about yeah there was a there's a black hole the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy called Sagittarius A. Sagittarius A star. Oh, all right. Well, uh, you, you can. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> has got a, has got a supermassive black hole. <laughs> a, a, the, the supermassive black hole has got a hot spot whizzing around it. So it's got this kind of what they think must be like a sort of bubble of hot gas that's in orbit around the star. That's what they think. I mean, there's a paper out, mm. if you can go directly to the, the paper called Orbital Motion Near Sagittarius A Star, Constraints from Polarometric ALMA Observations. So that's by M. Wieglus or Welgus et al. Again, and nobody's allowed to comment on our pronunciations. Yes, uh, I'm afraid not. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, they, they've kind of spotted this very, very bright, hot gas that's whizzing around, kind of at sort of, if if Sagittarius A star, even though it's millions and millions of times heavier than the sun, in fact, do you know how many times heavier than the sun it is? No, I don't. Tell me. 4.3 million Oof. times heavier Oof. than the sun. Oof. It's It's... Because it's a black hole, it's actually not that big. Yeah. It's it's actually not that big at all. So it's very it's, compact. <laughs> um, it's very compact, yes. So it, it's it's actually not that wide. So this hot gas cloud is uh, orbiting about sort of like the Mercury's orbit. So yeah. if you replaced if you replace the sun and stuck Sagittarius A star there, then this gas cloud is very close yeah. to the accretion the accretion disk and everything. In fact, kind of part of it. So it's kind of that's that's spinning around, but what what's interesting about it is that they think that that kind of then suggests that the accretion disk itself is going around in a certain direction. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, that I, th so it, I think obviously it requires more <laughs> data. What's my catchphrase? Nor observation time. Woo! Well, yeah, it, it seems that that means that, uh, that that it sort of says something about the sort of yeah. overall the overall black hole system. Yeah. So they're kind of honing down about what Sagittarius A star would be like if you were to get anywhere near it. Yeah, terrifying is the answer. I could tell you. I could tell well, them that in five minutes. They didn't need all this data. Well, just yeah, literally, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not that big as a supermassive black no. hole, although I'm sure it is very, very it's big. big. But, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. But yeah, but the but the one at the center of M87, of course, is is much much bigger. Yeah. But yeah. it's one of the, the, the I always think the craziest thing about supermassive black holes, and I, and I I should have asked Dr. Becky about this, is 
there's the, you know the tidal forces thing where, mm. you, where you get near a black hole. If you get near like a normal black hole, sure. you get spaghettified because you, the, your yep. feet are that much closer to the black hole than your head yep. that the tidal forces <laughs> are much stronger on your feet than they are on your head. So it yeah. literally pulls you into spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that the same doesn't happen with with super, very big, supermassive black holes because the tidal forces aren't, the, the variation isn't as big. Sure. So if if you were to fly, if you sort of drift into, if you fall into a supermassive black yeah. hole, you actually, other than like having to go through the accretion disk and obviously be burnt all to death, etc., etc., all, et of, that <laughs> all of that, stuff. all of that bit, <laughs> all that horrible stuff. Yeah. If if there was no accretion disk, if there was no other matter, you might not even notice going over the event horizon. Wow. But if you were being observed, anyone seeing you going over the event horizon would see you sort of freeze at the event horizon. So if you were to look back out when you were going in, you would see the whole future of the universe in one go. It makes me feel a bit nauseous to think about. <laughs> it, it, yeah, black, black holes are strange, aren't yeah. they? <gasps> Do you know what I did recently, by the way? I finally caught up to 1989 or whatever and read Contact by Carl Sagan. I hadn't read it before. Do you know what's really weird? I re-watched the film Contact really? at the weekend. Oh my God. Well, how about that? I haven't seen the movie. Should I watch the movie? Oh my God, should ah. you watch the movie? It's, <laughs> it's, 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 oh, absolutely. It's aged really well. Really? Do you know what? I, I almost was going to say at the end of this podcast how if anyone hasn't watched Contact, <laughs> watch it. Watch it. I'd actually forgotten how brilliant it is. It's so good. I know what good. I'm doing this weekend then. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. In fact, I might go and read the book now that well, you've, there you said, go. you've read the I book. I read the book, yeah, you yeah. watched the movie, we'll <laughs> swap sees. <laughs> well, swap sees, uh, absolutely, it's so good. It's when Matthew McConaughey was good before he went through his bad patch. We <laughs> <Ouch>. He <laughs> <laughs> we went through a bad patch, didn't he? Sure, where he was sure, just dreadful sure. for a bit. <laughs> yeah. It was weird because I don't think it was that well received at the time, but it's so good. The movie? It's got John... Yeah, it's yeah. got John Hurt in it. It's got Matthew McConaughey, Jodie Foster. Just very cool, right? I mean, Tom Skerritt. Oh my God, it's really. Because I didn't know this because spoilers. I mean, the, the black holes are featured uh, in this, and 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 tidal forces. I mean, at least in the book, they are discussed. I don't know how much detail they go into. No, it, um, it very, very, very little. In fact, yeah. it, they they don't. They, in fact, it's just wormholes. And as as we had just heard from Doctor Becky, there it, there is a difference between wormholes and black holes. There certainly is, absolutely. <laughs> well, how about that? Yeah, so, I mean, the, what what a what a good movie tip. The the only thing that made me a little bit sad mm. is that, of course, a big chunk of it is filmed at the Arecibo yes. Observatory. I was, and that I was that did it. that yeah that did make me a little bit sad. However, don't you just love astronomy? It's almost it's almost like you dedicate this much time to making a space podcast. <laughs> Do you like space, man? Do you like space? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the great thing is, I actually thought, God, wasn't how ace was Carl Sagan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like not only he's another. Well, what a great science communicator! Yeah. But to be able to write a book like Contact yeah, as well. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed it because, I mean, I, I, dare I say, it? I mean, I am a professional astronomer. Uh, that is my job. Mm -hmm. That's how I make my salary. And and so I thought it was really cool to read it as well because uh, I did think that um, it felt throughout quite realistic for such an unrealistic premise let's say mm. um but yeah i just thought it was really really cool yeah i love there's some brilliant bits there's lots of he's making lots of commentary about lots of different things he's very even-handed yeah. with his 
people of faith kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and and but let's say it, female protagonist, cool move by exactly. Carl Sagan. I, I has to be said that was one of the things that 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 made me think, God, yeah, this is a film with a proper yeah. female protagonist. It's not like that. That that that's, she, that's not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because she's smart and a woman. Whoa! Yeah, it, there's none of that in it whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an absolute legend. But yeah, it's got that. It's got you know things about about trying to get funding as well yeah, yeah, and yeah. like being taken Ugh, seriously as a young <laughs> as as a young kind of scientist and yeah. all those kind of things and not working in the right field that your professor doesn't want you to yeah, work yeah, in and yeah. all those kind yeah. of so so it's 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 really good yeah it must have been brilliant for you because it must yeah, have I really res- enjoyed it. resonated loads yeah. yeah 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 what are you up to what are you up to in the next few uh, weeks um mostly weeping uh because i have loads of work to do <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, let's it. be transparent you know this is uh the you know the your bread and butter as a as a researcher is writing papers um which is really fun uh until uh your work doesn't do what you want it to but uh <laughs> but no it's good i have a lot of conferences i have a lot of traveling to do um i might have something fun for next month's podcast but i'm not going to give any spoilers we'll see just in just in case just in case it um, just in case like i drop dead in the next 24 hours or something like let's not promise anything yeah just yeah (laughs) you don't want to jinx it yeah uh, okay that's me knocking on wood actually that's plastic crap there's no wood in here. Okay, my head will Well, have to well, do. anyway, <laughs> ev- everyone will find out what that is because it's going to be super exciting. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Well, that's it. I think we should say bye-bye to the Spodcats because we've probably spent uh, far too much discussing not, not discussing space. Would you like to thank our Patreons? Thank you so much to Paul Hilton, Ian Holland, Dr. Bob Hodges, Bob Moore, Malta Keisling, Alden Vala, Marissa Davis, Mark Schoen, Ben Guthrie, Ronald Hatcher, Tupper Hyde, Neil Hansen, Tyrell McAllister, Jean Wachtonick, Kenton Hokanson, Jacob Economy, Seth Haberlein, Mark Huber, Joseph Jude Biernett, Nicholas Gillenstein, Adam French, Jim the Bing King, Steve Croucher, and of course, Mark Kelly. Well, there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much, patrons. And I cannot thank you enough either because obviously you keep this running. You pay for the hard drive. You pay for the SoundCloud. You pay for everything. <laughs> so thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, yes. And uh, you know who, you know that I love you. And of course, you can always join and join, it, join in with the Discord where we have crazy channels in our Discord, like the AI channel where we, well, as discussed last time, and and a little music crazy music channel as well. You can you can you can just hell yes. Op- open up a channel and just chat amongst yourselves. <laughs> talk talk about so, talk about how disgusting our Greek pronunciation is. Yes, it was it was a bit awful, and 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 a massive and a massive shout out to Anthony and uh, Jake who had me on there. They're off nominal podcast the other day oh cool i didn't know that yeah 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 so that was that was super fun it was super fun we got to talk about sls which i, oh, I can't geez. i just can't i just can't bring can't myself to talk about on the- <laughs> it's like how many years oh my god it was well it was supposed to fly in 2016 i, I remember like 
being almost a teenager, like, well, I guess, I, yeah, I would have been. It's, ba- it's back in the hangar. It's actually back in the hangar again. It's back in the VAB. I saw, I saw a tweet. Um, I think it was Eric Berger who had said um, a tweet saying, like, I foresee the launch for early 2023. And it was so ripped on at the time, which when he tweeted it, which was in 2017, and people were like, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like, there's no way. Are you crazy? And I was like, wow, it's, yeah, like, second half of 2022. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not it, that many launch one is it, left. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny because there was a there was a little tweet exchange between myself and Eric Berger. And what his response to one of my tweets was, he doubts he'll ever, he doubts that he'll see humans ever launch on LS, SLS. <sighs> And that keeps getting retweeted all the time yeah, out of our feed. I've... So it, it, it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, I mean, you've got to be pretty brave on the second attempt to go up on SLS. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, we'll see. How, how much long? Yeah. Mm. Question. Which actually, with all of this, it does make you realize just how amazingly crazy it was yeah. that they did a, a manned launch on on uh, the STS one, the first space shuttle. I mean, just that just wouldn't happen. That, there's no way that that would happen no way. today. Is no there? way. I just mean, and like thankfully no. so, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, and John Young's heartbeat never went up, so he's being yeah. monitored, and it just stay, stayed at eighty. That's how, that's how cool. John <laughs> <Young> was. <laughs> just ridiculous. I don't think anyway. my resting heart rate is eighty. <laughs> No, <laughs> his heart. Yeah, his resting heart. His uh, yeah, his heart rate while piloting the crazy <laughs> space shuttle was lower than my resting heart exactly. rate. Yeah, ridiculous. What a ridiculous human being. Anyway, uh, um, that's it. Then I'm going to say bye bye. Thank you so much bye for having me. Bye. 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 Bye.